Welcome to the Life in Deep Ellen podcast, exploring the sacred in art, faith, and community. Good morning. Uh, my name is Marcel. We've been coming here for about four years. I don't know. Five, I don't know. It's been a while. And, um, so, you know, sometimes preachers preach very selfish sermons. Uh, we basically just find a way to connect whatever it is that we've been assigned and whatever it is that's bothering us. Uh, and then we just preach to ourselves. We don't really care about what's going on. I'm just kidding. I care about y'all. Um, but seriously, today is one of those days. I'm preaching on something that falls squarely within the prompt of our sermon series, which is limits and lessons. Um, and it's also something that I'm wrestling with, which is my um, absolute inability to keep life in balance. So there you have it. Uh, my sheer incapacity to manage a good balance between uh, basically whatever it is. And this is also one of those sermons where my family laughs in my face as I try and preach. Don't worry, that is a family tradition. Uh, they know how, how I've been struggling with uh, kind of trying to, you know, keeping it all together. Anyone else? Anyone? Anyone? Thank you. Appreciate that. So maybe I'm preaching to you too, right? Uh, I know I'm not the only one that's freaking out over the fact that there is way too much to do and not enough time to do it. My, my students at SMU right now are kind of in midterm land, and I, I can see it. it. There's a gleam in their eye, and it's not made of joy. <laughs> it's made of a constant state of mild panic, just like one step away from completely freaking out. I spoke to someone this week that told me that they were absolutely overwhelmed by, well, just, just by everything. Um, this past week was a portrait of the irony between how I narrate life to myself and what actually ends up happening. It was spring break. I told my students to prioritize rest instead of scrambling and trying to catch up. Then I proceeded to scramble and try to catch up. And it didn't work, right, which is uh, not surprising. In fact, the moment that the break started, I became kind of enveloped in a warm bubble of anxiety. Or is that a cold bubble of anxiety? I don't know. A bubble of anxiety that ballooned throughout the week as I tried the impossible to rest and to be ridiculously productive at the same time. What a stupid idea. I knew it was a stupid idea. And then I tried to do it anyway, and I slammed straight into the glass door of my own humanity, my own uh, limitation. It's like one of those gifts where people walk into a glass door at the bank. You've probably seen, wham, right in the face, limitation. It's right there. So that's today's sermon. How do we become friends with our vulnerabilities, our weak spots, our mortality, our suffering as we negotiate life? How do we find our rhythm? And I, I, I really appreciate what Chris said as we were worshiping. Um, you know, this song reminds me of a time when I didn't second-guess myself as much, when I could just kind of step into, uh, into belief, and then life finds a way to, you know, sweep the rug out from under you 
and suddenly things don't make the same kind of sense. You hit a wall, you hit a glass door, and you're like, what is going on? We're constantly struggling with our limitations. And it's hard to find one's rhythm. As a musician, rhythm is a very important notion to me. Rhythm, uh, it's made of sound, but it's also made of silence. In coordination. Sound and silence become a world of, of possibilities, of rhythmic possibilities. So today, I want to try and recapture some of that ever-elusive alternation between the parts, that balance, that rhythm, that all of us are in some way trying to achieve. I want to consider our limitations, our inability to do everything, everywhere, all at once. Oscar reference, anyone, anyone, anyone? As an invitation. Limitation as invitation. And I want to bookend that invitation with two texts. Genesis 1, the first chapter in Christian scripture, and Psalm 23, major hit on the biblical billboard chart, has been for decades. And uh, we're going to start by reading Genesis 1, and I'm going to pair it. It's like a, one of those, you know, food and wine things, but um, this is a scripture and song. I'm going to pair it with one of my favorite pieces of music. This is called Harmony of the Spheres. It was written by a Dutch composer named um, Jep Fransen. So... Genesis 1 in the message version. First, this. God created the heavens and earth. All you see, all you don't see. Earth was a soup of nothingness, a, a bottomless emptiness, an inky blackness. And God's spirit brooded like a bird above the watery abyss. And God spoke. Light. And light appeared. God saw that light was good and separated light from dark. God named the light day. He named the dark night. It was evening. It was morning. Day one. God spoke sky. In the middle of the waters, separate water from water, God made sky. She separated the water under sky from the water above sky. And there it was. She named the sky heavens. It was evening. It was morning. Day two. God spoke. Separate. Water beneath heaven, gather into one place, land appear, and there it was. God named the land earth. God named the pooled water ocean, and God saw that it was good. God spoke, earth, green up, grow all varieties of seed-bearing plants, every sort of fruit-bearing tree, and there it was, earth produced green seed-bearing plants, all varieties, and fruit-bearing trees of all sorts. And God saw that it was good. It was evening. It was morning. Day three. God spoke, lights come out, shine in the heaven sky, separate day from night, mark seasons, mark days and years, lights in heaven sky to give light to earth. And there it was. God made two big lights, 
the larger to take charge of day, the smaller to be in charge of night, and he made the stars. God placed them in the heavenly sky to light up earth and oversee day and night to separate light and dark. And God saw that it was good. It was evening. It was morning. Day four. God spoke, swarm ocean with fish and all sea life. Birds fly through the sky over earth. God created the huge whales and all the swarm of life in the waters and every kind and species of flying birds. God saw that it was good. God blessed them, prosper, reproduce, fill ocean. Birds reproduce on earth. It was evening. It was morning. Day five. And God spoke. Earth, generate life. Every sort and kind. Cattle and reptiles and wild animals, all kinds. And, and there it was, wild animals of every kind, cattle of all kinds, every sort of reptile and bug. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let us make human beings in our image. Make them reflecting our nature so they can be responsible for the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, the cattle, and yes, earth itself and every animal that moves on the face of the earth. God created human beings. She created them godlike, reflecting God's nature. God blessed them, prosper, reproduce, fill earth, take charge, be responsible for fish in the sea and the birds in the air, for every living thing that moves on the face of the earth. And then God said, I've given you every sort of seed-bearing plant on earth and every kind of fruit-bearing tree, given, given them to you for food. To all animals and all birds, everything that moves and breathes, I give whatever grows out of the ground for food. And there it was. And God looked over everything he had made. It was good. So very good. It was evening. It was morning. Day six. What's the rhythm that we're looking for? I want to consider the three words that I mentioned before, work, celebration, and rest, in light of this Genesis text as an invitation for us to think about our limitations. And let's start with work, right? Seems appropriate to start with work. What is work? Is work the, the need to provide for ourselves uh, and for those we love? Is, is work simply what gives us money? Is it, is, is it something that keeps us busy uh, for some, work brings joy. For others, work can be torture. There's one classical, there are many variations of this definition of work, but it's a, a physical or intellectual effort to gain or transform something. So a physical or intellectual effort to get something or transform something, change something. And it's a definition that certainly fits the Genesis narrative because God is, is, is doing stuff. He's, God's shaping the universe. In that context, God's word is the chisel, the tool that is being used to shape everything. And that's a, a, a biblical theme, this idea. I mean, in fact, Christian theology is very logocentric. It really likes that word. Um, at the beginning of the Gospel of John, for instance, uh, he says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John 1.1. 1, 1. And here, God's word is a concrete act into the universe. 
So it's not just speak, it's speech act. In Genesis, God's words and God's acts are inseparable. God speaks, God makes, God blesses, God creates, God places, God separates, and that creation is work. And the mark of God's work is that it is good work because work is a reflection of being. In the creation narrative, God's work is like, it's like a, a pregnancy. It's like a flower opening or a fruit ripening. At the end, something new and beautiful exists where it didn't exist before because God is life. And when God works, the result is life. The universe is transformed here from a soup of nothingness in verse 1 to something that God considers good in verse 31, from a void to light. Now, I want to make a caveat here because uh, Christian theology has a fetish for order, for tidiness, for labels, for things to fit in the systematic um, that they're supposed to fit. Some theologians say that classical Western theology is, in fact, dominology. It's the science of tidying up. It's obsessed with keeping everyone painting within the lines. That's not what I'm talking about here. Life is certainly not tidy. I'm not talking about tidiness. I'm talking about rhythm. But this term that's used in the first verses of Genesis uh, comes from the Hebrew tohu fa bohu. Tohu fa bohu. And it's an expression. It's used elsewhere in Scripture, in Jeremiah, in Isaiah. And it, it, it's used to describe a void, a void of people, a void of life. And in fact, um, this idea of a God giving form to something from a soup of nothingness appears in the creation narratives of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Phoenicians, Native American peoples. It also shows up in science. Look up um, the nebular hypothesis of Laplace, if you want, which argues that our solar system is a soup of dust that collapsed unto itself, and thus the Big Bang, etc., etc. Toha va bohu, the soup of nothingness. And in Genesis, we go from toha, tohu va bohu, to it is good. That's the orientation of God's work. And I, I said the other day that uh, I end up citing Luther way too often, and I'm just going to do that again. Uh, Luther, Martin Luther, the theologian, in German, he uses the word beruf, to indicate any, any calling, a professional calling or a spiritual calling, uh, whatever profession or occupation, uh, li literally whatever you're called to do is a beruf. Ruf means to call in German. And there's a, a letter he wrote in 1520 called To the Nobility of the German Nation. It's a terrible name, but it's a really good letter. Uh, and he says, From all this it follows that there is really no difference between laymen and priests princes and bishops, spirituals and temporals, as they call them, except that of office and work, but not of estate. For they are all of the same estate. True, priests, bishops, and popes, though they are not all engaged in the same work, just as all priests and monks have not the same work. What he's saying, what Luther is saying, is that Christian calling is related to the call of the, of, 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 of the God of the gospel much more than what they do for a living. What matters is how one responds to the gospel in the context of what one is doing. And Luther goes on to say, The maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays. Not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, 
but because God loves clean floors. I would argue that God also loves dirty floors. Uh, the Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes, because God is interested in good craftsmanship. The, essent the essential question that underlies what Luther is saying, and it's a question for us, is to what extent does our work define us, and to what extent do we shape the world through our work? In Genesis, we see that the world is defined, is shaped by God's presence and action. There's a very old theological doctrine, uh, Imago Dei, the image of God, that connects creator and creation. And what it says is that we are created in God's image, and we heard that in the text, and that we are in communion with God, so our work reflects God's work, and God's work continues to be reflected in the work that we work in the world. There's a lot of work. There's an intimate connection between God's work and our work. Pope John Paul II, of blessed memory, said, the word of God's revelation is profoundly marked by the fund fundamental truth that man, let's go with people, I don't think the Vatican police is going to, you know, break in if I start changing words in encyclicals. Um, the fundamental truth that people created in the image of God share by God's work and the, share by their work in the activity of the creator. That is, within the limits of their, of their human capability, continue to develop God's work into creation. In other words, our work is connected to God's work, and if God is good, God's work is good, so our work must be good if we are in communion with God. If God is beautiful, creation is beautiful, so our work should bring beauty into the world, and there are many kinds of beauty, so on and so forth, you get the picture. Work, 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 work. But not everything all at once, all the time. We need to celebrate. You can't just work. That's not rhythm. What is celebration? Give me some words. What, what is celebration? Woo! What? Fun. Joy. Partay. I love that. There's a story uh, told by the, the famous architect Frank Lloyd Wright. May have heard of him. Did design some important work. Um, go talk to Andrew and Sarah if you don't know who they are. Uh, he told of an incident that happened when he was nine. He went walking across a snow-covered field with his, uh, he had a very no-nonsense no uncle. So they, they reached the far end of the field, and his uncle stopped him and turned him around to look at the snow and, and said, look at, my, look at my tracks, and look at your tracks. Notice how your tracks, so this is his uncle talking to Frank Lloyd Wright. Notice how your tracks wander aimlessly from the fence to the cattle to the woods and back again, his uncle said. And see how my tracks aim directly at my goal. There's an important lesson in that. Years later, the world-famous architect liked to tell how this experience greatly shaped his philosophy of life. And he said, I determined right then not to miss most things in life, like my uncle had. It's not about going straight. It's about having fun. In the Genesis narrative, we, we find celebration. After repeating six times throughout the chapter, 
that what was happening was good. In verse 31, God looked over everything he had made. It was so good, so very good. Now, a Wall Street CEO might look at Genesis 1 and say, okay, here's what we're going to do. We can cut out a few verses. We can tighten it up. We can get more bang for our buck, increase our ROI. Corporate lingo, anyone, anyone? If we cut, some, you know, cut out some of that useless celebration, we're not paying anyone to be happy. We're paying them to be productive. But if there is no celebration, there is no life. When we celebrate well, when we celebrate properly, we remember what matters. Life itself, sustained by God, our friends, our family, our life journey. What matters? To celebrate is, is like stepping into a hot bath. It's um, reveling in God's creation, honoring God's creation, understanding the goodness of God's creation. And celebration requires us to stop working to pay attention to the beauty and perfection manifest in creation, the good things in life, in the world around us. So another way to say this is that to celebrate is to exercise hope. To celebrate is to exercise hope. To celebrate is to prioritize goodness and laughter, to remember what's important. Uh, there's a little uh, story from uh, Professor Leo Buscaglia, Dr. Love, a.k.a. Dr. Love. And he says that his dad came home and said he was going to go into, bankrupt, into bankruptcy because his partner had kind of absconded with their firm's uh, money and his mother went out and sold some jewelry to buy food and then proceeded to come home and cook a feast. And, you know, people in the family were looking at her like, hey, that could last us for several days. And she said... The time for joy is now when we need it most, not next week. Any scripture geek here will notice how similar that story is to the episode of Jesus having his feet anointed with perfume by a woman of the city who was a sinner. That story appears in all four Gospels, in Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John. She stopped the proceeding to do something deep, important, that cut through the veneer of the crap of Pharisee high society in the city of Bethany. To celebrate well is to cut through the crap. And remember that the time for joy is now when we need it most. To celebrate is to fight back against de despondency and despair, to fight apathy with laughter. To celebrate is to embody the hope of the gospel. And it requires scheduling that hope into our calendar in the form of a good dinner party, an ice cream break, a long hug, a walk in the park, a scented candle, what have you. Just ornament your life with hope. But there's one problem with celebration, and if you've ever thrown a dinner party, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. It takes a lot of work. I mean, Thanksgiving. I'm just going to drop that right in the room, right? If you're hosting Thanksgiving, you're screwed. <laughs> right? So the wisest person in the family is the person who gets away with never hosting Thanksgiving. Because celebration requires energy. So work requires energy, and celebration requires energy, and uh, when do we rest? At the end of Genesis 1, there's this transition from celebration into rest. Genesis 2 starts like this. Heaven and earth were finished, down to the last detail. And by the seventh day, God has, had finished their work. On the seventh day, God rested from all his work 
God blessed the seventh day, made it a holy day, because on that day he rested from his work, all the creating that God had done. And God doesn't rest from exhaustion. God doesn't get exhausted. God stops and rests to contemplate creation. The, the seventh day, the Sabbath, is not just a truce from work. It completes the work days. It concludes them. It's necessary for there to be rhythm. It's necessary for the whole to have meaning as a cycle. The rest, the silence, is necessary for rhythm to exist. Uh, German, I'm, I'm saying a bunch of Lutherans today, whatever. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, reformed pastor, tried to kill Hitler. Um, didn't succeed. He writes in Creation and Fall, Rest in the Bible really means more than having a rest. It means rest after completing one's work. It means completion. It means the peace of God in which the world lies. It means transfiguration, transformation, the transformation that we were talking about earlier. It's as if God is saying that creation doesn't need fixing or appending, revisions or continuation. The work is complete and God rests. So the transition we need to focus on here is between doing and being. God finishes the work of creation and then proceeds to establish a relationship with creation. Comes to walk in the garden with Adam and Eve and hang out. Now, I frequently close out my week more frustrated than when, it, than when it began, agonizing through the time that slipped through my fingers, agonizing with my limitations, my inability to pursue, to, to produce according to my, you know, lofty opinion of myself, right? So on, on Monday, I'm like, yeah, Marcel, you can do this. You're awesome. It'll be great. And then on Friday, I'm like, you suck. <laughs> but the problem is that I am not seeing myself properly. And that seeing oneself properly does not only happen in work, it happens in rest. And that is the freedom of the Sabbath. The day of rest is a knife that cuts through the crap of busyness. It's a, a window, an opportunity for us to learn that to be in relationship with God and each other is more important than being enslaved by our own frustrations about work or by work itself. Don't laugh. I'm talking to my family. Uh, rest is separate. Rest is sacred. And if it's not sacred and separate, we will always look at it and set it aside as non-essential. But if we look at rest as a gift from God and as a gift to God, we can learn to honor it. And when we let our guard down, we can finally look around and perceive what needs to be celebrated and what we need to work on. Work, celebration, rest. Work, celebration, rest. Work, celebration, rest. You find your rhythm. And when we find that rhythm, we're connecting these parts all components are important for rhythm to exist, for it to groove. The same goes here. If we take away any of these three, then life starts to skew, to, to tilt, to unravel. If we only work and rest, we become robots, right? We lose the ability to see God's blessing in our life. Work, recharge, work, recharge. We become starved of the joy of living. If we only work and celebrate, then we just get exhausted. Maybe that's just me because I'm old, but it's like working 12-hour days and, if you, and then partying the entire weekend nonstop. You might be able to pull that crap off once when you're young, but it is not sustainable. Don't laugh at me. It's true, okay? 
Life without rest is life without reflection. There's no space for resonance, no, no space to perceive the details, the voice of God whispering in our ear. And if we only celebrate and rest, well, then you go hungry, <laughs> right? Scripture begins with the account of God's work. God doesn't need to work. God sustained God's self. But the, the expression is a work of God's creativity, of the joy of being. And without that, without producing something good for ourselves and those we love, we wither. To ignore work is to ignore adulthood, to ignore maturity. So what's our rhythm? How do we find it? It seems to me that from the perspective of Christian scripture, there's one more ingredient to rhythm besides the three elements that um, we've already looked at, work, celebration, and rest, and that is communion with God itself. Um, it's something that the Bible is constantly trying to remind us of. Yeah, for Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. Mary at Jesus' feet while Martha is bustling about. and She's just kind of like sitting there. And Psalm 23. I told you I was going to bookend with the two texts. Um, I, I started working when I was 14. And I got my first stable job when I was 16. And I rem remember being at a conference with, with the boss that I had at that job. I was complaining that there would never seem to be enough time to do all the stuff that I wanted to do. And he said, Marcel, we are creatures with limits. We are within creation. So it's no use trying to ignore them or live as if they didn't exist. The wise person learns to dialogue, to have a conversation with their limitations. And I think part of what that conversation entails is contained in Psalm 23. So I'm going to read this from the New Revised Standard Version. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, leads me beside still waters, and restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. What I find in this psalm is more than a romantic pastoral description of what we wish life was like, you know, an idyllic stroll through nature, a picnic with the deity. Uh, what pulls this psalm together is relationship between shepherd and sheep, between a people and their God. It, it is God who reminds us to rest, who makes us lie down in green pasture, God knows the deep rhythm of creation. God set the tone for us in Genesis 1 by resting after the work of creation. And in Psalm 23, reminds us when we forget that rhythm. This is the same God who blew the breath of life into us that restores it in us when we feel that our life is being spent or smothered or suffocated. This is the God who says, no matter how dark the path, I am always with you. No matter how dark the path, no matter how heavy 
the thing that we're working through, no matter how out of balance. I am with you always. This is the God who, when the going gets tough and when every way out seems blocked, says, stop. It's time for a meal. Heck, I'm going to drip some oil over your head real quick while we're at Who does that? What does that anointing one's head with oil mean? That's God. Setting the rhythm, just like the, the, the misery dinner in Buscaglia's story. Come to think of it, it's just like the perfume on Jesus' feet in the gospel. Stop! Stop. Celebrate. This is the God who sets goodness and mercy on our tail. It is the God who pursues us and brings us back to the house of the Lord where we can find rest. So Genesis and Psalm 23 are pregnant with advice on how to establish a rhythm that talks to our limitations. God works, creates, and establishes relationship with creation. And we are called to do the same. And God gives us the cue for the rhythm, work, celebration, rest. I get lost a lot in what's still out in the distance. But it seems to me that from the perspective of eternity, from where God is looking, a good life comes from a good rhythm. Honest, well-crafted work, celebrating what brings joy, and the rest that allows us to put things into perspective and prepare for the next day. And when we find our rhythm, when we find our groove, a groove that resonates with God's rhythm, We'll find that in rest we can hear God, in work we can serve and honor God, and in celebration we can thank God. Amen. Mm -hmm.